Welcome to the Legal One podcast brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we're thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is approximately 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get important information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing crucial legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other important stakeholders to positively address the issues in question and know how to get a greater level of understanding of those issues. So let's get started, and thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Hello and welcome to today's podcast, where we will be discussing student residency issues. My name is Sandra Jakes, and I am the Supervisor of Legal Research and Content Development for Legal One. This podcast is being recorded on February 16th, 2023, and everything herein is valid as of that date. Before we start, I just want to remind everyone that even though I am an attorney, this does not constitute legal advice. I don't represent you. We do not have any attorney-client privilege. This is merely informational to give you an overview of what the law is in this particular category. If you have any questions or concerns, you should talk to your school board attorney for clarification. So moving into student residency issues, New Jersey law requires parents and guardians to compel their children between the ages of 6 and 16 to regularly attend the public schools of the district. One of the things that happens that causes a problem from a legal perspective is that when people come to sign up their kids and register their kids, they get turned away at the door. That is not supposed to happen. The first area that we will discuss along these lines regards citizenship status. The school, from the government perspective, doesn't care whether you're documented or undocumented. If you have a child and they're of school age, they should be signed up. Now, I understand that not everyone agrees with that. But the fact of the matter is, is that a school district is a government institution, and a government institution must follow state and federal law. And the law requires that the students be enrolled. This is based off of a case called Plyler v. Doe, a U.S. Supreme Court case from 1982. So it has nothing to do with politics within the last 10 years. This is the way it's been for decades. School districts cannot inquire about immigration status when enrolling a child, and they may not require as a condition of enrollment proof of lawful admission to the United States, a social security number, income tax returns, documents relating to compliance with local housing ordinances or tenancy conditions, with the exception of students seeking an F-1 visa. Now, if a parent wants to voluntarily offer that information, so be it. Make sure you document that they voluntarily offered it and you didn't ask for it. But it cannot be required. This is not like when you go to renew your license where you have to provide something from column A and something from column B and something from column C. There is nothing restricted in that you have to produce this in order to be enrolled. I do strongly suggest checking out a memo. It always comes out the last week of August from the Department of Ed. And it specifically addresses enrollment of students based on immigrant status. So watch for that to be coming at the end of August of this year and every year, because it's the same memo that dates the only thing that usually changes on it. So if you can't demand anything for proof of residency, what can you look at? And understand, I'm not saying you have to believe everything they tell you. 
but you can investigate that later. But if someone shows up and they don't have any paperwork whatsoever, they still have to be enrolled. They can't be sent away saying, come back when you have this or come back when you have that. And I know a lot of times you might have, for lack of a better phrase, the gatekeepers, a secretary or someone administration that is enrolling the students. And they think they're doing a good thing by helping out, by saying, no, 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 you need to have all these documents before we can enroll you. But actually, when they do that, they're in violation of the law. What they are supposed to do is take whatever is offered and then pass it up to the higher ups for them to make their decision. And I liken this to when I go to a doctor's office. When I walk in there, I meet the receptionist. She'll go, hi, what are you here for? And I'll say, oh, just a checkup. Then I get to the nurse that takes my blood pressure. What are you here for? Oh, just a checkup. Then I get into the room and I get the nurse that comes in to talk to me before the doctor comes in. Oh, what are you here for? Just a checkup. And then the doctor comes in. What are you here for? And I list all these problems that I have that I didn't tell the first three people. That's because I don't feel like telling a story four times. And I want to talk to the person that has the power to make the decision. I don't want to just keep repeating myself all along the way. And sometimes when people are coming in, there are embarrassing situations. They're homeless. Maybe a parent has gone to prison. They're living out of their car. There's just other things that they just don't want to tell in a public setting. And a lot of times the people that do enrollment, they're not, you know, isolated in a single office where you come in and you have privacy. It's anyone that's in the office is going to hear what you're talking about. So what can you suggest? You can suggest things like property tax bills, deeds, contracts of sale, leases, mortgages, a signed letter from the landlord, voter registration, permits, financial account information, utility bills, court orders, receipts, bills, canceled checks, insurance claims, medical reports, affidavits, documents pertaining to military status, or documents issued by a government entity. Remember, you can't require anything. You can just suggest things. So a lot of the times I will get pushback on this where people will say, well, you know, people lie and you can't always believe what they're telling you. I'm not telling you to believe everything that they're saying as soon as they walk through the door. What I'm saying is you accept whatever they offer and then you vet them later. And as an example, there was a case, KG versus Watchtongue Board of Ed. It was from February 3rd of 2015. And in that case, a woman tried to enroll her student, but gave a PO box because she had a restraining order against a former boyfriend or someone else she was involved with. And the police had told her, never, ever give out your address. We all know documents float around an office. Many people have eyes on an address or things along those lines. So to keep it perfectly safe, she was only to give out this P.O. box. In addition to that, she submitted a letter from her landlord who owned property within the town. And he said, I won't tell you which one she lives in, but she does live in one of my properties. And the school said, nope, that's not good enough. You need to produce an address. You have to give us an address. And she had made them aware of the restraining order that she had as well. So when they said, nope, you can't register, you can't prove residency, she filed the appeal and she won. And what the court said is you have to take into account the totality of the circumstances. It's understandable why in this particular incidence, she's not going to give an address, but she has given you the way to keep in touch with her or get in contact with her. And she's provided proof, although it's not an address, she has provided proof that she actually lives in the town. So that helps you to keep in mind, you have to consider everything. People aren't going to have exactly what you want. If they are doubled up or they're living where you have five families living in a two-bedroom apartment, 
they're not going to have a lease to show you. A lot of times people don't get other leases. Last time I had an apartment, I signed a lease. And then as long as I was paying on time, it was just automatically renewed every year. I didn't get a new lease every year. It was just my old one just kept being renewed because I was paying on time. So you have to keep these types of things in mind. Remember, you take whatever is offered and then the higher ups determine whether they should stay or not. You also want to make sure that your website is up to date and your handbooks are up to date with the information that come sign up. There have been lawsuits in the past where things weren't put correctly on the website where it said you must provide a license or you must provide a social security number. And they ended up getting sued and getting in trouble because they hadn't updated their website to reflect the current law. And a lot of them would say, well, look, if you just told us, we would have changed it. And it was the ACLU that brought the lawsuits. They said, it's not our job to monitor your website. It's your job. So you want to make sure all of that is up to date. I would also point out that for many of you, your comprehensive equity plan is going to be due in June of this year. One of the categories in that comprehensive equity plan that you have to fill out is under section three, subpart F which says that you have to check, yes or no, we've done this, ensure that all schools registration procedures are in compliance with state and federal regulations and case law. So this is backing up that you have to verify by something that you're going to sign off on and submit to the state everything that I just told you in the first few minutes of this podcast. You want to take heed. A lot of the protected classes that have issues with registration involves race, ancestry, religion, nationality, and transgender status. Students can register as they identify. Uh, I don't know that everyone knows that, but that is something that they can do. Just as another point of interest regarding access, in 2021, Chapter 461, it was officially passed in 2022, but the bill started in 2021, the state requires internet websites and web services of school districts, charter schools, renaissance schools, and Katzenberg School for the Deaf to be accessible to persons with disabilities. So if you have video on your website, you need a closed caption or at a minimum, a script to go with it. Anything that's an audio component of your website that may talk about the registration procedures or anything for that matter, there has to be a component on there that will either have closed captioning or the script for those that have disability issues to be able to follow along. So getting back to the residency itself, how do you define domicile? A student is domiciled in the school district where they are the child of a person whose permanent home is located in the school district. So let's say there's a shore house. They could not go to school in the district with a shore house because that's not their permanent residence. They would go wherever their house is, where they're going to get their mail and all that kind of stuff. A home is deemed permanent when the person intends to return to it when absent and has no present intent to move from it even if they have homes or residences elsewhere. If the residence is in violation of local ordinances, but is still located in the district, the domicile is in the district. And this includes dilapidated housing. This can be the situation you're not on a hunt to out them. As I mentioned earlier before, you've got the five families living in a two bedroom apartment. It's not your place to out that to the housing authority or to their landlord. You're just verifying that they put their head on the pillow in your district at night so they have a right to go to school in your district. The only way you would report something is if there's some sort of safety issue involved, where it's a hazard for the child or the living conditions are a hazard for the child. 
and that would go to DCPNP. And as you know, with DCPNP, there's a joint filing requirement with the local law enforcement as well. Emancipated students, which are age 18 or emancipated at a younger age, are domiciled in the district where the student has established a permanent home. The emancipated at a younger age, they will have court documentation that they're emancipated. Obviously, you don't just take their word for it that they're considered an adult in the eyes of the law. If they don't have a copy of the court papers, if you can ask them which town or which courthouse they were in when this happened or where they went through, your board attorney can probably find the papers. We can do things called docket searches and look these things up to pull public records like that. If a student moves mid-year, the students have to be presently domiciled to attend school. So a lot of people think, well, we're going to move. I have to move. So we'll just let him finish out the school year here. And then, you know, he'll move up with us wherever it is we're moving to. They don't have a right to do that. If the school chooses to allow that, they're actually being nice. They don't, the school does not have to allow that. And different schools handle it differently. The key is you have to handle it consistently. Some schools say, okay, fine, you know, it's your senior year, finish out your last three months here. Other schools will say, okay, you can come here, but you have to pay us tuition for those three months that you're going to stay here. And other schools will simply say, nope, you're not staying here. You move, you go where you move. Now, the exception to this would be a family crisis exception, which I'll talk about in a little bit. You can also have tuition students. Now, I mentioned the tuition in the case of someone that moves, but it could also be they treat your school as a private school, that they they like your school district better than the one that's in the town where they live, and your district offers the option to pay tuition to attend your school instead of the one where they live. Now, I mentioned the family crisis, and uh, a 2013 law permits a student to finish a school year in the school district if the student moves out of district as a result of the home being uninhabitable, disruption of the family unit caused by a death of a parent or guardian, or other family crisis, which that's a pretty vague statement. The thought process behind this is, is that if something so bad has happened to them, a traumatizing type of event, that sometimes the only sense of stability and security they have is in the school. They know the routine, they know the people, they're comfortable there, it's a safe haven for them. So it will allow for the student to finish out the school year and then they would relocate the next year when hopefully things are looking better for them. The school must provide transportation if the student lives outside the district but continues to attend because of a family crisis. And then at the end of the fiscal year, the district may apply to the executive county superintendent for reimbursement of transportation costs. Make sure you do that. There's a lot of money left on the table because people don't know that they can apply to get it back or to get reimbursed for it. What happens when the parents live separately? Where is the student's domicile then? If the student's parents or guardians live separately and there is no court order or agreement that designates a school district for attendance, the student's domicile is in the district of the parent or guardian with whom the student lives for the majority of the school year, regardless of legal custody. So sometimes with the divorce decrees or child arrangements, there's something in a court order that will say they're going to go to mom's school district and the parents have agreed on this. But when you don't have a court order, you look to see where do they stay 51% of the time. That's what you're going to look to. Now, if you have the situation where it's 50-50, then you will look to where were they as of October 16th to find out where they should live. 
For temporary residents, if a student's parent or guardian is not domiciled in the district, but is living temporarily in a district, the student can attend school in that district. Districts may require a parent or guardian to demonstrate that the temporary residence is not designed solely to allow the student to attend school within the district of temporary residence. You think of this happens a lot in sports where one town has a great soccer team, another town has a great basketball team, and the original town has a great baseball team. The kid can't keep switching districts in order to play sports in each individual district. And the NJSIAA has policies about sitting out when you change districts to try to stop that from happening. But there are other reasons where someone may go to a district as a ringer or for some other reason that is not simply, this is the best place for me to go. I have an agreement for tuition or things along those lines. A domicile exception is for parents that are on active military duty. A non-resident that previously was a resident of the district must be readmitted to the district the parent or guardian is a member of the New Jersey National Guard or of the Armed Services Reserve and has been ordered into active military service in war or national emergency. Non-residents will not have to pay transportation costs. Now, there is another law that was enacted as of January of 2022. It's PL 2021, Chapter 470. And what this says is that dependent children of military members who received relocation orders and whose anticipated residence will be within New Jersey can enroll in a school district, attend classes, and receive services free of charge as if they were already a resident in advance of the military member's relocation to the district. A copy of the relocation orders need to be presented, and then the school district can waive any other proof of a residency requirement until such time as the member's family has been relocated within the district. When someone in the military gets orders in October, you're going to move here. You're going to be stationed at Fort Dix or something along those lines. In order to have the kids start the school gear in the area of Fort Dix where they're going to be, this is saying if you have the orders, these are government issued things saying they are moving there. He has no choice. She has no choice. They're moving there. Then you can let the kids start in September and the relocation orders satisfy your proof of residency up to that point. So an exception to keep in mind. Additionally, there might be something called an affidavit student, where a student is living with someone that for all intents and purposes is taking care of them and supporting them gratis. They're not charging anything. They're not getting reimbursed by the state. The biological parents have not given up their parent status but it's just in a position where they can't support the child properly, so someone else is doing it for them. If you saw the movie The Blind Side, Michael Orr was an affidavit student when the Tuohys took him in. So in order to do this, you have to have a sworn statement or affidavit of domicile within the district, supporting the child gratis, assumption of school-related duties for the child. They're the ones who are going to go to the parent-teacher conferences and things along those lines, and supporting documentation. The parent or guardian's sworn statement or affidavit of inability to support the child, plus documentation of financial or family hardship. Sometimes this is hard to get, and some schools have accepted having an affidavit student with not quite everything that's there, but these are the requirements that were put out under the law. The caregiver does not have to have legal custody or guardianship. And the student may not be deemed ineligible for enrollment as an affidavit student because sworn statements cannot be obtained. As long as the underlying requirements of the law are met, that will be fine. Uh, if you want to check the Department of Ed website for student registration information, you can find much more information there. 
A student is still eligible to attend school in the district if the parent or guardian gives them gifts or makes limited contributions. So the biological parent can give them birthday presents, can give them Christmas or Hanukkah presents or things along those lines. But it's not considered like a payment under the table to the couple that's taken them in for support. The parent or guardian, if you deny the affidavit status, they can appeal the board decision in an expedited appeal to the Commissioner of Education. The appeal must be made within 21 days. That's calendar days, not school days. And the child shall not be denied admission or removed for enrollment pending the Commissioner's decision. The thought process behind this is they want the child in a school somewhere, so they're getting some benefits of some kind, rather than sitting at home and watching cartoons or playing video games or, or doing things other than what you should be doing while you're in school. If the resident's claim fails, tuition can be assessed for the student's ineligible attendance. One other point to make is that you may have students coming from a foreign country and they try to enroll in your school even though they have graduated from the school in their country. It's not an automatic, no, you can't enroll here because you've already graduated. You have to look and see if wherever they came from, their school is equivalent to the United States schools. And if it's not, they could enroll and be placed in an age-appropriate setting and given the services that they need. I'm going to go through a couple of cases now that help bring the law to life. I love using cases because it's, here's what I just told you to do, and here's a case where they either did or did not do what I told you, and here's what happened. So the first case is AM versus Board of Ed of Union County. It's a commissioner decision from August 2nd of 2021. During the 2020-2021 school year, the student was enrolled as a kindergartner in the Elizabeth School District. Due to COVID-19, instruction was conducted remotely from September 8th of 2020 through April 19th of 2021. The father resides in Hillside and has joint custody with the mom, while the child was going to school in the mom's school district. However, mom had to go to work. I don't know whether she was an essential worker or whatever it was, but she was going to be gone for the day. So rather than having the child sit at home or have to follow mom along, child went to dad's house, which was in a different district, to do the remote learning and then returned to mom's house afterwards. And the district tried to say, well, you weren't living in our district. You should have been going to school in a different district. And the court said, uh, no, they did it this way so that you know, the child was not left alone. The child was residing with the mom the majority of the time. A little more into the remote learning. We have another case, NS versus Board of Ed of Magnolia, another commissioner decision from October 7th of 2021, where they were living in Magnolia. And then in April of 2020, the family relocated to North Carolina due to COVID. They kept their lease in Magnolia, but they physically were down in North Carolina. The student continued to attend school remotely in Magnolia from North Carolina. The family is living with the grandmother, and everyone agrees this is not a homeless situation. They chose to go down there. They weren't forced to go down there. They believe that they cannot return to Magnolia until the apartment in the area is safe. The child was recovering from cancer and people that have a higher risk. That was the, their argument of why we can't come back. However, what ended up happening was, is that they kept staying down in North Carolina. So the district, when they found out about it, sought tuition reimbursement saying, well, for that long, and given that it seemed like you were staying in North Carolina, you should have been going to school in North Carolina. And the administrative law judge agreed. And so did the commissioner on appeal. And so 
for the attendance in Magnolia virtually for the 2020-2021 school year, the parents were ordered to pay a reimbursement of $18,599 for tuition. So it's, again, don't leave the money on the table. It's seeking out what you're entitled to. This next case involves COVID and the intent to move. So we have RG versus Board of Ed of East Brunswick, a commissioner decision from October 7th of 2021. In this case, the student had been registered in the East Brunswick school setting using a Milltown, New Jersey home address. However, a few months in or a month or so later, another family produced a deed using the same address that this student had been registered with. And so in October of 2020, the district learned that the child had actually been living in Carteret since the end of the prior school year. The district contacted the father and he confirmed that yes, the family was living in Carteret, having left the Milltown address at the end of the prior school year. He said the family was staying with the grandmother in Carteret to take care of her during COVID and that the goal was to move to back to East Brunswick by November or December of 2020 at the latest. Once the school district had confirmed all this, they sent a tuition bill to the family and they had worked out a weekly payment plan until the family could prove residency was restored in East Brunswick. Remember, they planned to move back, but planning to move back or intending to move back is not moving back. They actually have to put their head on the pillow in the town where they want to go to school. And so after the district issued this payment plan, the parents did not pay anything despite multiple notices being sent to them. And the district sought to change enrollment to Carteret while they continued to seek the tuition reimbursement. This ended up going into the court system where the court cited on behalf of the district. And what they said is, if a school district finds that the parent or guardian of a child who is attending school in the district is not domiciled in the district, the superintendent or administrative principal may apply to the Board of Education for removal of the child. In this case, the ALJ determined that the student was not entitled to attend school in East Brunswick during the 2020-2021 school year and ordered tuition reimbursement of $16,314. And on appeal, the commissioner concurred. I hope that the information provided today was beneficial to you. This podcast has provided a brief overview of student residency statutes and case law. If you would like a more in-depth discussion of student residency issues, you are welcome to sign up for my semi-annual workshop regarding attendance, residency, and homelessness, where additional cases and new laws are discussed and explained. If you would like additional information about the Legal One podcast, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org slash legal1nj, or you can contact me directly at sjakes, J-A-C-Q-U-E-S, at njpsa.org. Thanks for joining me today and have a great day. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.